Okay. Um, cool. <laughs> Welcome to episode 17 of Consensus on Reality. I am still doing stuff through Zoom. So I still sound like this, I guess, to you listeners. Um, we are here today with uh, Stephanie Quick, a researcher, writer, uh, paranormal person. And uh, yeah, welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for coming Hi, on. Ben. Hi, Dave. Yeah, thanks. It's really nice to uh, be here, uh, Dave, to meet you. And then uh, Ben, uh, yeah. we met earlier yeah. through Anomaly Archives talking about Eugenia, Eugenia Mesa's story, which was really oh, yeah. fun. Yeah, that was great. And yeah, maybe we'll talk about her a little bit uh, today, too. I'm always down to talk about her. She's my favorite. Um, so um, what do you think of <laughs> the sort of current uh, state of the world? Let's let's get that out of the way. How's, oh. I mean, from maybe a maybe from like a paranormal or mythical even uh, or even synchro mystic uh, angle. What what do you think's going on? I mean, things are erupting, I guess, huh? It's, well, it's interesting because I've always had kind of interest in the paranormal, but then also I've been, always been like a big kind of uh, uh, left wing social justice person, and then mm -hmm. also uh, interested in conspiracy theory. I listened to Mae Russell and Dave Emery like from back in the nineteen eighties on. Uh, yeah. KFJC Foothill Junior College radio station and um, you know it's terrible I've had a lot of people in my family very interested in history and uh, you just see these patterns that uh, keep erupting and uh, if you look at the history of the United States you see that we have these incredible founding documents that, that set out these very high ideals and um, for better or worse, probably for better uh, procedures where you can actually uh, in as you go through history, through time, there's procedures and methods, processes for bringing more people in, into uh, being able to participate fully in that uh, civic space and in, in those ideals, right? Mm -hmm. um, it has just been 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, right? And we finally have a woman in the White House. Oh, yeah. As VP. Yeah, it's taken yeah. that long because you have, of course, at the same time we had these incredible high ideals, we have things like the Three-Fifths Compromise, which is like, okay, people can be property and people can be cut out of participating and we can, um, you know, kind of, uh, I don't want to say... Uh, weight things so that certain people have a much bigger, bigger participation than other people. So you can see the setup, the tension from the beginning that we had a big, bad, horrible situation with the Civil War, and yeah. we didn't kind of do the truth and reconciliation thing, and um, so things slid back. You know, you constantly have this going back and forth. And then I think we have had, uh, since the 80s in my life, I'm almost 60 now, uh, with uh, Reagan and uh, Newt Gingrich and stuff, you have a lot more um, uh, money in politics and that type of yeah. corruption and more. I remember then it was like a real emphasis. We used to be, when I was growing up, we were citizens, right? With Reagan, we became consumers, right? Mm. It, mm. That you're a person is not the important part. 
the important part is how much money you have. And we've seen that really just go completely off the rails and we're kind of reaping the whirlwind. And, you know, related to that, I think, is as much as we fucked up the environment and hmm. forgotten about taking care of people, this pandemic is being a lot worse than it even has to be. Although, you know, that's another thing as far as history goes. You always have these plagues coming up. It's just part of our ecology, but we could right. have been a lot better prepared for it. So, mm. yeah, it, it seems like we're doing uh, everything wrong <laughs> from, from, from everyone. Everyone thinks that like, no matter how you look at it, like uh, people that are people that don't like, don't even think it exists. Um, they think that it's being handled wrong, of course. Mm. And then people that, you know, do think that it exists, think that we're not, you know, so it's just from, Everyone's unsatisfied with uh, whatever's happening. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, it just seems like a time of uh, a lot of uncertainty. feels like the, the major uncertainty and, like, I don't know. Yeah, maybe there's another word, but that, that feels like the, the main thing, chaos, I guess. But it doesn't feel like productive chaos. Um, no, it's, well, it's, I was just speaking with my mom. Part of the thing is that the whole, we, we constantly have this idea of American exceptionalism. As Reagan's speechwriter used to say, like the city, the shining city on the hill, right? But the problem is that every country is subject to these type of um, tensions and processes. And unless you guard against, uh, you know, violent overthrow, then you're open to it. And that's why... For example, Germany, after their whole Nazi experience, has very strict uh, laws about what you can say about the Holocaust and uh, promoting Nazis, and you can't do it. It's what's called the paradox of intolerance, right? Mm -hmm. You tolerate everything, and you can have some really uh, intolerant views. But there's this whole idea of American exceptionalism that, well, you know, in those third world countries or other places, you can have, for example, armed people uh, busting into the Senate and assassinating a bunch of the elected representatives and then whoever's left gets to take over, right? Yeah. There's absolutely, there was nothing, I mean, we saw that happen in, uh, uh, was it Governor Whitmer, that whole uh, plot to kidnap her and lynch her. Mm -hmm. And you had in that same state, you know, you had armed people going into, you know, the the uh, representative bodies as they're in session. Why do you need to go in there with sub-automatic machine guns or whatever, semiotic, I don't know what they're called. Right. But, you know, yeah. ones that, they're more than pop-pop guns, which are bad enough. Right. There's only one reason to do that, but you still you have a lot of people trying to downplay it. Well, they're just exercising their rights. It's like, no, they're trying to terrorize these people into not voting the way they did. And you also, you know, through this pandemic, you had a bunch of uh, mayors, other uh, local elected officials, and uh, health uh, officers who have stepped down from their positions because they have death threats and you mm. know people mobbing their homes. So I, I don't know why people didn't think that was going to happen. And that as coups go and attempted coups go, you know, you try and you have someone whipping people up, and then you have a mob, and you see what the mob does, and then you are hopefully, and I think in the incident this last Wednesday, it's pretty obvious that um, from testimony and from what we could see with our own eyes, that um, security was pulled deliberately right. mm -hmm. to make those people vulnerable. Mm -hmm. and, um, 
you know, it's irritating. One pet peeve of mine is you get a lot of kind of like a academics on the left or certain analysts saying, well, really, these are people that have been deprived and that they're, you know, their situations aren't great and, you know, they don't have the same opportunities that they used to have, all of which may well be true, except for that lady who I guess flew her private jet in to be part of this mob. Um, but, and not, not listening to what these people said, right? That all these people have huge social media presences. You know, even the guy with the horns was like, oh, he's Antifa. No, he's sitting there with a the big old Q sign. <laughs> right. And all these people are saying that, you know, we, we they want to go find Nancy and they want to go hang pants, right? They want right. to bust into the Capitol and kill people. That's what they said. Right. But no, we have to explain that actually it's like, no. So mm. the to me, I see it because I believe very much in process being the one thing that can save us from, I mean, I've never voted for anyone I was even remotely uh, interested in or behind as far as policy goes. But, you know, this incident shows process is infinitely better to just like flat out mob rule, which is where we're heading. Hmm. You know, the footage of them just pulling that police officer out and beating him is horrible. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so... Is, I'm glad to see that the FBI has stepped up and is tracking these people down and is arresting them and uh, talking about bringing charges of felony murder um, so that people are aware that, you know, if you're in one of these mobs and someone gets killed, uh, you can be charged with murder, felony murder, and that's a capital offense as well. So hopefully people will start to uh, take it more seriously. But, yeah, it's very yeah. dicey because you have these different groups um, with their own power bases at play. And then you have, like you're talking about a force of chaos, Trump, who's just like heavily implying all this stuff, all these small factions um, whipping them, themselves up and making their own plans. And you don't really know which way it's going to go. I really doubt Pence thought that they would be building a gibbet for him when he went over there right. to certify the Electoral College vote, right? Yeah. But that's the that's the thing about mobs. You really never know how it's going to go. And these are the people who've been saying blue lives matter for years on end now. And they're yeah. like, okay, we're going to fucking kill you. Here you go. It's crazy. Yeah. That, I mean, that's why you don't want to go there because things can get really out of hand. And it, it, it's very rarely a positive change for the average person. <laughs> anyway, that's my two cents. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, I feel like we might be getting an echo. Am I getting an echo? Um, I heard a little bit of something. I, I think it's also just um, the fact that you know, post truth is is such a cliche at this point. But I think it's just the fact that um, it seems like on both sides, most people have lost faith in. Um, any sort of objective reality for good reasons, because I mean, of, you know, obvious corruption and infiltration of finance into the government that there is no official story anymore. If there is any official story, it's so splintered and fractured that nobody wants to have anything to do with it. So now you have all these separate disparate reality tunnels going on and they're just fil cycling and filtering. Um, creating these feedback loops it's definitely a very strange time i'm, I'm not, mm. not sure how we're gonna get out of it but uh I yeah. hopefully um 
I don't know. Hopefully you're right. And hopefully, uh, you know, process will be, uh, will be a ladder to get out of the current situation. We'll see. Hmm. Um, so maybe, yeah, I mean, you know, it feels important to at least touch on that stuff a little bit just cause it's, uh, it's still so present. And, uh, as we're recording this, we're still, uh, you know, a little ways out from the, uh, inauguration and that sort of stuff but so you know uh but i guess the to get into something a little more uh or less <laughs> less uh sour maybe um uh when i when i asked you or uh approached you for like you know to do an interview uh something you thought would be interesting to talk about was this uh uh sort of occultist uh, ida craddock right yes ida um, so do you want to maybe tell uh, our listeners who that is and what, what's their deal? Yeah, and actually there is an overlap and intersection um, uh, with our current situation, as it turns out, which I didn't realize would be the case <laughs> when we had been discussing this. But I've been interested in her for quite a while. Um, she is one of those people she... Uh, was a woman who was born in 1857 and uh, she grew up in uh, Philadelphia. Mm. Her uh, mom was a spiritualist. This is kind of like around the time of it, like the burned over district and that awakening had been happening. Mm. So sort of like spiritualism, her mom would uh, do some um, automatic writing and some Ouija board stuff, that type of thing. Um, but the kind of short and sweet version is that uh, Ida, um, she was very precocious. She uh, grew up professionally. She was a stenographer. She, she taught stenography and uh, she wrote a textbook on stenography. She was supported uh, many times by her mother, who this is an interesting overlap with uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph, who was mm. interested in marijuana. Um, because uh, Ida's mother had a patent medicine that was a, a cannabis base. Hmm. And so she sold that for like 40 or 50 years. She sold this medicine. That was how they had that made their living. But um, she, uh, Ida ended up becoming very interested in sex reform, uh, meeting with a lot of people who were involved in uh, free thought, which was, you know, kind of... Um, the idea that you have free speech, but also that you could be uh, questioning religion, um, social reforms related to sex. Uh, she was very interested in women having more of a voice sexually. Um, and she was doing this at the time when, because here's the one of the intersections, is the whole censorship, censorship issue. There was a guy called Anthony Comstock, and there was something called the Comstock Laws, mm. which people may or may not be familiar with. But he uh, started in 1873 the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which was a private moral enforcement squad that was kind of funded by the government and given um, kind of certain legal um, uh, leeway with the government. He was able to set up this private squad where they monitored the males and anything having to do with sex, birth control, uh, God forbid you mentioned abortion, or even just talk about how a married couple uh, could have a more satisfying sex life within the bonds of a holy Christian matrimony. 
nothing about that. Um, he claimed to be responsible over his career for 4,000 arrests and 15 suicides um, because he was a vindictive, awful, well, she nailed him at the end of her life. He was a uh, basically a sexual sadist who I think got off on reading all this stuff mm. and prosecuting these people. Um, so this was kind of the background. This had been going on for a while. Um, she ended up uh, becoming more outspoken about the issues of uh, sex in 1893. Now, she'd had some things published before about the uh, religious uh, sexual symbolism in Alaska and, uh, you know, kind of general writings. Um, but in 1893 was the Chicago World's Fair. And she went there, and like a lot of people, she saw they had ladies there doing a belly dance because they had all these pavilions from uh, different countries around the world. Now, Comstock had been, uh, let's say, shitting himself because it's, of course, completely immoral and controversial. And this is not like anything today. They're pretty much completely covered up. But, you know, the movements were so suggestive and so sensual that uh, Comstock was trying to work all this up. Now, at that time, people were starting to get not so into him and uh, he had a lot of pushback from people who had seen this and said, well, you know, it seems to be very, um, you know, it's interesting culturally and there's nothing untoward about it that, you know, it's like leave people alone. This is fine. Um, but he was still pushing for it to be shut down because he just wanted to stamp out sex all over America at any point. Um, so he had uh, written about this and then there was a um, new place called the new york world it's not a place it was actually a periodical or a paper and they uh, published a bunch of letters in response to his call to censor this dance and um Idocratic wrote a uh, um response which was published and this basically ended up putting a target on her uh, because she wrote very movingly, she was very, uh, had been uh, at this point uh, studied a lot of mythology and religious history. She had been uh, attending a Unitarian church for a while and uh, had a lot of intellectual uh, discussion and conversation with people about all these uh, different issues that were going on. So she talked about, uh, I think she had like a kind of a spiritually awakening experience watching the belly dance because. Um, I don't know if you had read Robert Monroe's work. He uh, talked about his mm -hmm. body experiences, but he talks about a method of communication that he calls the rote, R-O-T-E, or it's the, he has all these acronyms, related organized thought energy. Mm. So it's kind of like nonverbal communication where they just kind of toss you this ball that comes at you one at once, and then you can unspool it and it has all this information in it. I've had this uh, same experience with my own, uh, the entities I met through my own near-death experience. It's very odd, but very interesting. And you can learn a lot of interesting stuff. Um, and I think that she had a similar experience watching this dance because suddenly she's like looking at the tassels and seeing the symbolism of the fact that, you know, you have to, uh, she believed that you would be, um, uh, not having sex like during the, the time of a woman's mental cycle and then uh, once that's over in her view and she ended up uh, talking with a lot of people too she thought that was 
uh, when the woman would most desire sex so that you have like the celebration. So she's like seeing in the movements, everything about it. She's like has this whole kind of um, erotic, mystical, symbolic understanding about how uh, men and women can uh, relate to each other in marriage um, and in sex in a way to awaken uh, the mystical connection to the divine through watching this dance. And she speaks about it incredibly eloquently in this letter. And she's also incredibly high-minded, uh, very uplifting always in all of uh, everything that she's writing. So she got this letter published, um, which was bad enough. But, and I think this is the one thing that sealed her fate because Comstock ended up uh, basically hounding her to death over the next uh, about 10, uh, 20 years. But um, she writes at one point, I forget exactly how she puts it, but she says, you can tell the people who are high-minded and don't have a problem with sex because they'll sit there and they can appreciate the beauty of this, but you can tell the people who don't because they kind of go pshaw, ejaculate uh, precipitously and leave. So she's not... <laughs> And this is like an 1893 where she's saying, yeah, these guys can't, you know, last for more than two seconds. That's their problem with this. So, yeah, you can see why she got in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that, um, is the com the Comstock person, I, I mean, I definitely know the name. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if he's this, I, I'm a big fan of this <laughs> this writer, James Branch Cabell, um, who is a, a, a fantasy and sort of uh, a literary writer. Um in like the late 19th and early 20th centuries-ish. And one of his books was uh, put before like an obscenity uh, thing. I feel like that might, was when did he die, Comstock, do you know? Or? Comstock ended up uh, dying about 1915, but his uh, mm. reign of terror or error as it was, came to an end about 19. 1902 or 1903. Interesting, so it must have been a different guy then. Cause I mean, yeah. but the same New York obscenity tribunal thing uh, is, is who uh, sort of went after this book by Cabell. Yeah. It's, yeah. That whole um, thing is interesting. Yeah. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to spoil it a little bit before, but in 1902, he ended up um, hounding her to the point. Ida ended up being uh, committed to a mental institution for three months. They're like, well, she's fine. So we have to let her go. Um, they, she ended up uh, going to the workhouse for three months and she was in, like in her mid forties and the conditions back then were seriously brutal. And, um, so he had, uh, arrested her twice and she had been found guilty again in this, uh, fantastic trial where, uh, of course, the things that she had been distributing were so obscene that the jury couldn't read them themselves. So the judge just told the jury, uh, these are uh, materials are obscene, and uh, if anyone mails obscene materials, you must find them guilty. So that was the type of trial she got. Yeah. She couldn't even have any people uh, testify in her favor. So, so she knew she was going to be sentenced, so she sat and she wrote two letters, one to her mom and one to the public, and uh, committed suicide. She died by suicide. Uh, turned on the gas and slit her wrists. Um, but she would deliberately martyr herself because uh, she really believed that pe in free speech. She mm -hmm. really believed that uh, people needed access to accurate uh, information about sex. And um, she thought, you know, Comstock was being so horrible that um, she thought this was her only way forward. And she figured she would probably die in prison anyway because mm -hmm. conditions were really bad back then. 
And um, as it happened, uh, she had so much su public support and her life had been so exemplary that um, public opinion turned against Comstock. Mm. And within a year, he'd had a nervous breakdown and he had lost all his funding. Wow. So it worked. Yeah. And so that's why we all owe her an incredible debt because if you're able to um, get birth control, if you're able to, uh, I mean, forget porn, if you're able to go on like Planned Parenthood and find out about how to protect yourself from venereal disease, um, you know, if you know that if you're a woman, you should pee after sex to avoid an UTI, right? That, you get that information because she uh, died to expose him for what he was and to help break that momentum on that. So that's a little bit of a spoiler um, as to how that went down. But she ended up um, publishing more about this, um, this whole, uh, um, her insights into the spiritual, mystical, religious symbolism, sexual symbolism of the belly dance. And um, at the end of it, this article, she said, well, people may wonder how it is that I'm an unmarried woman, that I would know all of this stuff about sex. Well, it's been because uh, for the last year, I have been the lawfully married wife of a ghost. And so I have learned uh, about the marital relation because we have, uh, a, you know, uh, relate to each other as husband and wife do. <laughs> So she just kind of like drops this bombshell. At the yeah. End. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> People are still like, what? <laughs> Over a hundred years later. Um, yeah. So she just kind of, uh, everything about that was just like a big old bombshell where people are just like scandalize everyone on multiple levels. Um, but it's fascinating to me. If people are interested in uh, Mitch Horowitz, his uh, work on occult America, he actually has, they're still up. They're very old, but they're still great um, interviews with Greg Minsky on occult of personality. He has a couple of ones on occult America. And so uh, Horowitz talks mostly about, um, for example, uh, secret societies, lodges, and their influence through their philosophy and everything. But the other aspect of occult America is you have people that get into contact with these spirit guides or discarnate entities, and uh, it's very influential to them about how they act in the world yeah. to try and um, create a better reality for other people. Uh, Mitch Horowitz has another... Uh, he's spoken about the public universal friend who was a woman who ended up becoming very ill. And then when she recovered, um, she was the public universal friend who was just this entity that was working towards equality and social justice against racism, against sexism. Um, the idea that we could all be people and we could all have civil rights and participate um, and uh, it's interesting because I forget uh, at the time that the public universal frame was going around, but uh, Horowitz makes the point that um, in like the 1800s and stuff, you, it would be very scandalous for a woman to uh, become a public speaker in a lot of ways, except for if they, uh, a woman was speaking about the moral side of society and calling people towards uh these type of higher moral standards for speaking about these for like the women's Christian uh, mm -hmm. temperance union. That wasn't so scandalous. Mm. Still kind of scandalous. 
quite so scandalous because they're talking about, okay, here are how we can become uh, better uh, family members and take better care of children and families as Christians. Um, so, uh, and Idocratic is fascinating because, you know, she's a free speech martyr. She is a martyr towards sexual freedom. She's a martyr for sexual agency among women. And this is before women could vote or anything that she even died. Um, but, uh, you know, she was able to speak in this way and be heard because she was, you know, was very uh, upright, very uplifting. She was always talking about uh, union with the divine and how this could make us more moral. She was talking about how uh, having a more satisfying, um, less stressful sex life for uh, families would result in um, more stability in society. Uh, she was also very interested in um, male continence. She ended up developing a whole kind of system of uh, sexual or erotic mysticism with various stages, which is kind of similar to like a Randolph or the OTO. Mm -hmm. um, uh, hers was m less magical and more about um, attaining mystical union with the divine. But we have to put it into context at the time, which was, you know, birth control was illegal. Um, and uh, there was a lot of concern about uh, the clitoris or masturbation. <laughs> Gosh forbid about, you know, gay people, poor Oscar Wilde. Um, you know, all this stuff was very fraught. Uh, so the approach that a lot of people took to this angle was the whole idea of male continence, right? which is uh, having sex without ejaculation. But, um, and this is practiced like in the Oneida community. We also have like free love as far as, you know, people sharing partners and stuff. Um, but what is interesting is that, so it's partly just like as a means to birth control, but then there's also this angle of, um, uh, you know, if you like as a sex magic or mystical technique, right? You hold off on orgasm, you kind of delay that, and then you have all this energy and a possibility for popping into these uh, altered states of consciousness, or if you want to channel or uh, pr practice remote viewing or anything that you want to do, it's going to be more uh, available. Um, but the other thing is that she taught a system where it's possible for men to um, not ejaculate, but experience the sensation of orgasm. So you kind of have like the best of both worlds, especially back then when you could, you could not practice birth control. Mm -hmm. So, and then the other reason that I suspect um, that a lot of these systems involved these kind of like long drawn out erotic situations back then, um, later on in her life, she ended up uh, at first, she, you know, wrote about the, the belly dance. She got hounded actually over to uh, Britain because her mom wanted to capture her and throw her in an insane asylum. <laughs> so she had to escape to Britain and um, live with some people over there. There was a guy who wrote a book called, uh, uh, was running a um, periodical called, called the Borderlands. He was a spiritualist and I, she met some theosophists as well. Um, so she had like the British Library over there, all this uh, theosophical people, a bunch of exciting people as far as all this stuff. She ended up writing a book called Heavenly Bridegrooms, 
Um, that book, some more information about her, her, I believe her book, Psychic Wedlock, and some more of her other writings are available online, uh, sponsored by, uh, uh, I think it's the OTO that runs the website, but it was a guy called uh, Vera Chappelle who wrote a book about her, which I have. It's called Sexual Outlaw, Erotic Mystic, The Essential Idocratic. Mm-hmm. And um, it has all these materials there, but you can read a great body of her work online. But she ended up uh, kind of collaborating. She had a number of spirit guides besides Soph, who was her husband. Uh, another guy called Iasis. Ias, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, and he really helped her um, to kind of, as kind of like a combo thing, helping her write this book, Heavenly Bridegrooms. But it goes through history and across cultures, um, all these instances of uh, people, humans having these uh, marital relationships with discarnate beings of all different types. She has an awesome story in there of like a 14th century abbess who was wedded to a gnome. <laughs> he met her when she was like 12 and he delighted her and she made him happy. And uh, so they were together and she ended up becoming an abbess. Um, and then it turned out that they couldn't really do, no one wanted to do anything about it because all these miraculous things happened. She was uh, very upstanding and pure and um, did a lot of good works and everything. So she is, and it's one of the things that she finds as a continuing theme with these relationships is that, and what she recommends is that you need to be, have someone who is uh, chaste and upright and moral and has a pure heart and is always uh, looking towards God, even though you're having it's like screamingly wild sex. We have to be thinking about God. Wow. So, um, yeah, so she wrote this whole book, but I kind of suspect that another, um, so after she wrote that book, she ended up coming back to the United States and she was very driven. And this is starting, I, I think in the late 1890s, she was very driven to share the information that she had developed with other people. So she started seeing clients privately and, and uh, speaking with them orally about all this information, which was not illegal. And she ended up, she uh, developed like 87 case studies of people that, you know, were having sex problems. And um, she saw all walks of life. She ended up having a lot of defenders and people that uh, appreciated her work among doctors and psychiatrists, uh, lawyers, all, all type of professional people. Uh, she had a number of her papers were uh, published in like medical journals because there was a there was none of this type of information out there and it was you know very fraught even for you know like a doctor to talk about these things but um and she also this is interesting but like 40 years before Kinsey she had like a diagnostic uh, questionnaire that she would give to people about their sex lives and everything um, so she was very a- ahead of her time she I can't tell you if you read any of her stuff, she is really smart and incredibly nice. She reminds me of Eugenia Macer's story where it's just like the more you look, the more it's like, wow, this one little speck of her life is like more than I could ever right. hope to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think another reason why uh, she was big on dragging things out, especially before penetration, is because um, like pain, vagina penetration is because um, – you know, this was before you could buy a 55-gallon drub of, you know, water-based lube and have it delivered to your door, right? <laughs> this was before um, you could go, 
you know, find out any information for yourself. And this is before antibiotics and um, women could be injured. She talks about, you know, she talks about some pre kind of pretty horrible stuff in this book um, because infant mortality and maternal mortality was very mm -hmm. bad at this point. This is kind of like the germ theory wasn't quite so much a thing at this point, sanitation. They didn't have uh, antibiotics. Um, she talks about, uh, she wrote a uh, pamphlet called The Wedding Night about, you know, if you're going to have sex, you know, this is kind of what things you can do so that you can both have a good time. And also to avoid things like she talks about, you know, because there's this kind of tradition that's like, well, she should be a virgin. And you just kind of like ram in there. And, and she talks about one woman who was in bed with vaginal abscesses for six weeks after her husband tried this on her because, right, you didn't have lube. And if you you know, rape someone, you can injure them, you know, who knew? But yeah, and that was, this is before antibiotics. So, I mean, it, women could die. She talked about another horrible situation where she was in a maternity ward. A woman had just given birth and it was a very difficult birth. And it was just a few hours afterwards and her husband was in the ward raping her. And back then, and actually until like the seventies or eighties, in America, um, you could rape your wife if you were a man, and there was no consequence, right? Mm -hmm. It was not. It was not illegal, you know. To, you know, consent was not a thing. I think that's why people get worked up about it these days because it was not. I mean, it was in my lifetime. I remember I was a young woman before they started passing laws that, yeah, guess what? You can be charged with rape if your wife does not consent. So, uh, I, and I think this is another reason why people at the time were very concerned with kind of drawing things out so it would be more uh, liable that the woman would be uh, ready physically uh, for sex and why they'd be concerned with, um, you know, men not ejaculating because, uh, you know, women had bad mortality as far as maternity and stuff and they, I think it's kind of terrible because it, you read her and she's very very much of her time in that um how do I want to say you know she has uh you know you don't want to have masturbation you really need to have orgasms through the vagina not the clitoris of course now we know that the clitoris is kind of a much larger structure than just the head right I don't know if people know this you can look online but if you think of like a, a wishbone with the kind of arms hanging down. It, <laughs> right? Getting into anatomy class. <laughs> if the vagina was having a friend over to visit, those arms would be giving the friend a hug. <laughs> That's it, right? It's a much larger structure. So she, they were wor worried about these type of things uh, back then. Um, and there is, of course, at that strain, there was also kind of a strain of eugenics, right? Certain people should have, be having babies, certain people right. should not. So you can read some of her things. You kind of think, well, is it getting a little bit eugenic? But the thing is, she's mostly recommending that people be able to plan to have a good environment in which to raise a child, right? Mm -hmm. And that you have a proper time after a baby is born so that people can take care of it well. Instead of, you know, if we just had back then, you could have... You know, people getting, giving birth and then bammo, you know, they're just pregnant again immediately and you don't have money for it. The child is going to suffer. The family as a whole is going to suffer. So 
that was the thing. So she kind of had this, uh, these kind of two chapters of her life where she really concentrated on the whole kind of um, uh, mystical, uh, spiritualist, um, occult side of uh, her uh, ideas about uh, sexual and erotic mysticism and um, how that was. And then uh, later on, she had years of working with uh, her private clients a lot of them. And that, that's what got her in trouble because she ended up, um, she was very concerned with getting that information out and she felt it was wrong not to. So she ended up um, mailing out pamphlets and distributing her pamphlets. I mean, at, at one point she ended up um, uh, having a plea deal and her mom had made a secret deal that she had to get thrown into an in insane asylum for three months. Uh, but also part of the deal was that she, all of her pamphlets, all of her books that she had had printed had to be burned. So you had like oh. actual literal book burning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Huh. But that's kind of her deal on that. And then, as I said, the last about two or three years of her life, uh, Comstock just really came at her. And um, she ended up in the end, she, she fought very hard. Actually, Clarence Darrow, the uh, very famous... A lawyer uh, represented her at one point. Hmm. Got her a plea bargain, <laughs> another plea bargain. Yeah. But um, you know, she got hounded out of towns. Um, she had to escape the country a couple of times, um, and then in the end, she deliberately martyred herself, and it, and she pulled it off. And so we we are the beneficiaries. So I don't yeah. know if you want to. I, I want to say drill down, but that seems kind of crass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like a. Yeah, I love these people in history that like, yeah, their their life stories are like, uh, very like these deep sort of, I, maybe archetypal is the wrong word, but like just these like these very like charmed sort of things where I mean I'm sure living that life would have been hell a lot of the time, mm -hmm. but but looking back on it, it has this sort of like almost mythic, really like sort of a like glowing quality to it. I don't really yeah. No, yeah. mythic, I think, is a great word. And she, um, it's fascinating, too, because I've been thinking a lot about this recently, the whole idea that you have these people that have these, like, really out there experiences, because um, the people around her are like, well, it seems like she has this relationship with her spirit husband and her spirit guides, and she kept diaries for years of all her spiritual experiences and a number of different experiences with soft, which are really kind of charming to read because um, I always think about people, you know, it's like this idea that sex magic, I mean, a lot of people that are like public about it tend to be, um, oh, who's the Xena uh, who's married to Nicholas Shrek? I'm not sure. Yeah. I think it's Anton LaVey's daughter. Oh. I say. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, she's very uh, beautiful and super sexy and glamorous. And she has like this kind of hard, uh, almost dangerous edge to her. And it's like this very performative, super kind of goth, spooky, mm -hmm. satanic thing. Um, and so it seems very uh, difficult to obtain because you're just kind of like, I'm just like kind of some normal slob. <laughs> you know, how can I get involved? But I love that um, she you know, is, is uh, very uplifting and she's just, I mean, she's just like a little uh, 
you know, Edwardian kind of with their hair in a bun and, and very, you know, nice looking, but nothing, no great shakes. And then when you read her, hmm. her uh, accounts of her encounters with her husband, it's like, it's cute because she'll talk about, well, you know, she was like trying to hold off, but then she couldn't quite, she kind of came a little bit, but in spite of herself, but then she kind of got, <laughs> so you see, even her yeah. she's been going at it for years on end and she's still like, well, I did my best, but then <laughs> she's like a, a lot more attainable for like a normal person mm. somehow. Yeah. Was she ever part of like, uh any like occult like orders or anything was she, or was she sort of more like admired by them later on or i think she was more admired by them later on she ended up corresponding with and uh working with and knowing a lot of people who were involved like a, like that guy who did the uh borderlands i mm -hmm. think I'll, i forget what his name is now i don't know where i put my glass over there um and uh she um Let's see. She ended up, uh, oh, I think it was uh, Foot. Foot was uh, one of her benefactors. And, then, oh, it was Stead who, uh, who employed her over in London and was involved with that. So she knew a lot of these different people. I don't know. They don't mention that she had, like, taken initiation into any occult groups. Mm -hmm. um, she kind of got like the big initiation through making these connections with these um, spirit teachers, which I think is another kind of fascinating angle because we always think about the groups and belonging to a group as being the big thing. But I think with a lot of these things, a group can be a, a doorway to contact, but the contact is the real initiation. And I think sometimes people lose sight of that. So she knew a lot of these people. She corresponded with a lot of them. But she didn't really do that. She had set up at one point. She met this guy who was like the first Zoroastrian uh, person who set up a Zoroastrian church in the United States. And um, she ended up setting up kind of a small school of yoga where she was in instructing people more like kind of meditation and breathing and energy work mm. um, and different st uh, styles of co uh, consciousness. But I don't think that she, as far as I know, she's never took an initiation into any of these um, occult groups, which is fascinating because she studied, you know, meditation, levitation, um, divination, scrying, uh, automatic writing, Ouija board, all these different types of things. But she never was a like a group member. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, that's probably not spoken about as much as it needs to be. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, 
so maybe yeah we can move on uh talk a little bit about uh well i don't know what, what should we talk about next i think maybe um I, I mean i wanted to talk a little bit about your uh your work uh sort of studying synchronicity and, and stuff like that mm. um uh or we could of course uh, talk a little bit about eugenia Mazer's story but maybe um yeah, I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> well, I could just tell people a little bit if you want. It's funny because I, I started a blog about the esoteric side of my life a couple of years ago. And uh, I didn't think that I had, you know, I mean, I thought, you know, I've been keeping up, but I haven't been like, you know, really blasting out. And I, I saw that I uh, posted like 57 different, different posts already. <laughs> so I guess I've been a little more productive than I thought. But, um, yeah, I've, I've been interested in synchronicity, the meaningful coincidence, um, for the better part of 20 years now. And I, when I first got interested in it, I was just reading this book about it, um, I actually got interested in it at trying to get them started as kind of an experiment to try and drum up more synchronicity. They, this guy talked about uh, the idea of it in this book that which the name of which I've forgotten it was like an old book at the library and they had decommissioned it very soon after I read it and so I haven't really been able to chase it down yet but um, I have had a lot of medical problems over the years and I've had um, a couple times that I'm pretty close to dying and every, every time when I was really sick like that, when things would turn around, I would have some type of numinous, mystical experience, like when I have my near-death experience um, and other sim similar visionary experiences. So at this time, I hadn't been married that long. I was, I don't know, late 30s, early 40s, and I had developed a really bad problem with my leg. I could barely walk without taking like a couple of Vicodin. I had troubles driving. I mean, even trying to go out and do errands with my husband, I would just be crying because the pain was so bad and my leg was like really, it didn't work right. And I couldn't get a diagnosis, which was very bad. Um, Cause you know, you, if you don't know what's wrong, you have very few options for getting anything mm -hmm. happening. It was really, I mean, it was to the point where I was considering how do I, suicide and make it look like an accident so that my family doesn't feel bad but I can't live like this right yeah um so I read this book and I thought hmm, this is interesting because this guy says you can just get synchronicities going just by paying attention to them yeah and I got the idea that I could um kind of bring some of that same kind of numinous energy into my life around this problem by trying to drum up synchronicities I don't know why I had that idea, but I did. And I thought, well, I'm not doing anything else. And all you have to do is pay attention. Yeah. So for about a month before I was going to see a neurologist um, about this issue, I was trying to pay attention to synchronicities. And I got some good ones um, going. And then uh, the day of the appointment was in the afternoon. So in the morning, I took a couple of Vicodin and I went on my daily walk. And I ended up, I was coming up to this rise and I saw uh, my neighbor who was like a Mary Kay sales lady. So she always knew her, <laughs> and her little dog biscuit and then like a new dog. She, she was walking towards me and something, I saw him and then 
something distracted me and I looked away. And then when I looked back, she and the, the new dog were there, but Biscuit had turned into kind of like, just like a kind of a translucent white cube. And then they all disappeared. And then after a number of seconds, she came over this crest. I saw her with this new dog. It turned out that Biscuit had died. Hmm. So I'd seen a couple, like a lady doppelganger, a dog doppelganger, and a ghost dog. Yeah. So that's why I call my blog Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box because of that incident. So that afternoon, I went to the neurologist and I finally got a diagnosis, which is that I had nerve, nerve damage. So this got me interested in synchronicities and the whole idea of trying to get them going. Um, I don't know, several years later, this is probably about four or five years ago now, uh, Steve Ray and I were uh, fellow members in a Radio Mysterioso uh, podcast fan book. And back then he was, uh, Greg Bishop, the host, was doing live shows. So Steve's like, you want to do an experiment? We can try and get synchronicities happening on the live shows. We'll choose a target and just only communicate in private uh, over electronic means so everything will be time and date stamped and we'll see what we can do. So we did that experiment over many months and we had some good uh, results again on that. Um, and since then, and that was a great design that, that Steve had, it, it, it was funny because he had the whole idea of doing it in secret and doing it electronically so you have the time and date stamp. And um, it's funny because a couple, three years ago, Jacques Vallée, the famous uh, computer scientist and ufologist, was giving um, a big like rubber chicken dinner speech for the uh, IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And he actually mentioned the same technique. He said, you know, this is a, the beauty of the internet is that you can time and date stamp everything. So if you want to do these types of experiments, and I thought, ah, yes, exactly like Steve said. Hmm. So um, that was fun. But since then, I have been involved in doing more of these synchronicity experiments to see um, just kind of how things come out, how meaning seems to flow through these things um, uh, or these clusters of synchronicities. I've been trying to get ones over the last couple of years that are stronger in that um, they have more a digital trail of things happening in real life. Um, so I've had uh, ones involving like um, uh, there's one called Danger Bridge if you want to look it up on my blog. Uh, and I had these synchronicities that were kind of pointing, pointing towards uh, this time when we had this firestorm breakout here in our area. And um, it turned out that three different groups of people who I'm very close to, family and friends, ended up being on the bridge or very near the bridge in Vallejo that the, the firestorm blew across, which was super scary, mm. which was very unusual. Um, so that's like a real-world event, but I ended up having a digital backup communication saying that that happened, as opposed to just kind of like, uh, you know, seeing things show up um, on your timeline or something, which could be fun and can actually be useful, like a library angel. Um, so I've just been doing more of that type of work. Um, it relates to Eugenia Macer's story, because she was also talking about, okay, what do synchronicities have to say about how meaning uh, appears in our world and the, the kind of structure of various dimensions. 
and whatnot. But the weird, oh, excuse me, the dog. Um, the weird, you can see him back there, very tiny. <laughs> um, the weird thing for me is that I've noticed, because uh, I started as kind of a way to learn about synchronicity and meaning as it relates to these kind of, because it tends to uh, pop up synchronicities around, for example, uh, flying saucer contact, alien contact, uh, ghost hauntings, uh, poltergeist incidents. So I was thinking this could be a way into the paranormal because it's like easier to get these happening, but obviously they kind of partake somehow of the same circumstances or energy, right? So it could be a way to find out about this. Also, the role of meaning is very important to people who have these strange experiences. They're always asking, what does it mean, right? Mm. Um, but I've noticed over about the past year and a half that um, in a way I want to get synchronicities that have, it's kind of like I'm doing it as more as kind of like an art project. Like I, I like to have kind of like a certain aesthetic to it as well. Yeah. At, which I, I didn't even realize that too much until recently. I don't even know what it means or if there's anyone else who's doing like synchronicity as art. Mm. I know what you mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, if it has kind of like a certain um, completeness, or uh, I tend to, in my art, I really like, like my photographs tend to be very kind of dramatic, and a lot of these synchronicities tend to be dramatic, although part of it's because um, they tend to be related to firestorms very often. I live in the Napa Valley in California, and so mm. we've been having these firestorms. Um mm. And as you know, Eugenia Mesa's story has her theory about fluid ice that certain yeah. chemical um, reactions facilitate uh, psi expression. And fire is one of these reactions, right? So, mm. so I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, she, she had all these sort of, uh, well, it sort of had all sort of, uh, what's the word? Um, revolved around this fluidus, fluidus uh, matrix theory of, I mean, yeah, she spent a lot of the last, the last uh, decade or two of her life sort of developing these sort of this scientific theory that bridges like synchronicity and physics uh, in this really interesting way. Um, which is not, not something that I, I certainly couldn't explain in this podcast right now. But <laughs> it's funny because um, the listeners may not know, but uh, Ben, you and I were on a panel about Eugenia Mesa's story, mm. and I was tasked with trying to explain her uh, fluidist theory, <laughs> yeah. and I, I kind of understood it just enough to kind of get it across. In that, you know, period of time. And after that, my brain is still kind of like, what? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, she's very amazing, too, though, because I, I still can't believe when, when we did that um, panel, the day we recorded it, uh, she would talk, too, about these kind of weird um, talismans or things that she would find, like rusted talismans. Mm -hmm. And it was so weird because I was sleeping on the couch out front and I've been um, meditating and stuff a long time, which is neither here nor there, except that you, you tend to uh, be able to identify states of consciousness a lot more. You don't have as much, like you'll know when you're dreaming, you'll know looking back, you don't have as much that kind of uh, 
kind of uh, hold over or bleed over between states of consciousness, stuff like that. Mm. That right. morning, it was very, I had a very, very vivid dream that, and I have, you know, this problems with my leg and stuff is originates in my pelvis that I had, I looked down at my pelvis and there was this little kind of a rusted uh, branched off kind of twig thing. It was maybe about uh, three inches long and it was kind of um, attached to my pelvis. And I looked down and I saw it and I thought that's like one of Eugenia's talismans. And I, and I kind of broke it off and put it um, on the arm of this uh, couch behind me. And I woke up and I was looking for that because I hadn't realized that I was dreaming. And I, it's been probably about almost 30 years since I've dreamt something like that and not realized. But that's kind of the power of Eugenia, hmm. you know, that type of thing. And the funny thing was I've been having a lot of trouble with my leg the couple of weeks prior to that. And I, it was much better after that dream. So, hmm. so wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. I have also had... Uh... Whenever I'm like really deep into, I'm still trying to put together this uh, reader of her of her work, like uh, selected works. Um, and whenever I get back into sort of that uh, realm of work, uh, the sort of synchronicity stuff starts to ramp up again. Um, the dream world becomes sort of strange, stranger and more potent again. Um, so yeah, there's something either in her work or in her life as a person that's like uh, very connected to this uh, this whole thing of synchronicity and what whatever is going on. Yeah, I don't even. That's not. I feel like that's not a big enough word for it. Synchronicity. Um, it's like yeah, cosmic coincidence control center. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you used yeah. um, the Randonautica at all? Me? Uh, no, actually, I haven't. Um, I know I know about it, and I like that they're. Uh, I'm a bird watcher, so I like that mm. their uh, emblem is the burrowing owl. Mm -hmm. But uh, I haven't actually done that. Partly because I have like this. Well, I'm kind of like a typical person like me that you would think. Because I have a problems with electronics, and I have this like kind of funky old creepy phone that <laughs> I'm always. You know, it's like all of a sudden it's it's like one of those things. It's like all the other stuff, files that you can't like delete have, you know, taken over your phone and I always have apps kicking off and it's, I'm going to have to get a new one in a little bit here, but. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. That's, I think we were talking in our interview with uh, Recluse uh, about that. Um, seems like, yeah, some, some sort of trying to turn this kind of like questing into a, into a game, which I feel like it's, it's hmm. playing with, it's playing with fire. Yeah. Um, but it, it also seems very useful, like, like a tool. It's weird because that one of the things that became really famous with that is the, um, when those, uh, I think it was two young women who were uh, put travel into their uh, Randonautica this is a few months ago, and it was up in the Midwest, or in the Midwest, the Northwest. And um, so it took them to a spot where there was a suitcase. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it live on TikTok, and they opened up the suitcase, right. and they found some people who had been murdered. Yeah, yeah, I remember and that. 
it's fascinating to me because there's always this strain in the paranormal that um, these incidents want to bring up stuff that's hidden, uh, shadow stuff. Hmm. And there's so there's always the strain of like the unquiet dead, right? Wanting to seek revenge. And I thought it was fascinating that they, you, they developed this app and then it was used for this purpose. And around the same time, I forget the young woman's name. She was a member of the armed services and a fellow service member murdered her. And um, the uh, people in charge at the base where she had been did a really shitty job of looking out for her and um, trying to find her after she had disappeared find her body they finally found her body and found who had done it but the fascinating thing to me was and it was around the same time whereas again it's like justice comes up um but because of course these people found those dead bodies in a suitcase and it turned out that this uh, young woman who had been murdered her body had been transported again in like a a travel case so it's like this weird Uh. yeah it's like this weird kind of theme of a symbol coming up in both instances and uh, using this kind of uh, random app, randomization, um, and then uh, this intention of uh, justice for the dead coming through it, I thought was really weird and odd, but kind of typical of yeah. uh, the paranormal. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wild story. Travel. It all starts so innocent. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrifying well it's funny if you read uh, George Hanson, Trickster and the Paranormal mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. talks about uh, liminality yeah. which is of course ruled by Hermes who is the god partly of travel communication right? mm-hmm. yeah and uh, yeah, I guess he also is at least for a little while the, the psychopomp who takes you down so the death thing comes up there too yeah yeah. Um, yeah, I like I like Hermes. I like to think about I like to think about Hermes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a lot of walking lately in neighborhoods, and I can't really read right now because of these headaches. But th- the last thing I was reading was a book that mentions Hermes and his role as a like the sort of the the boundary god, the one who sort of is the marker of boundaries and. Uh, in the neighborhood I live in, it's just, you know, it's all houses. And I just have been like really noticing like what the ambiguities of where property lines uh, begin and end. And thinking about like how this ancient, like the ancient Greeks used like little statues of Hermes uh, yeah. to, to mark their, their boundaries. And just like this, <laughs> this ancient, um, what do you call it? Like obsession i guess with 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 space and divvying it up um not that that speculation or whatever is going anywhere but (laughs) that's just what i've been thinking about lately um i don't know uh i mean i I wish i had more to say about eugenia macer's story uh ems but eventually i'd love to do maybe a whole episode on on her work but I'm curious so much. Oh, um, I'm curious how you um, archive your experiences with synchronicity and how you're organizing it before you start writing or visualizing it. Um, and if maybe like you notice things that you hadn't noticed the first time, if there's coincidences in the threads between and stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's partly the, I think this is part kind of the art angle, which so I'll kind of have times when I'm thinking, okay, I'm trying to, you know, like I'll be shooting for a, a target date or, or time period or, or something. Um, and I'll take a lot of pictures of things. I will uh, take screenshots of things. Uh, it's nice on your phone because it has a time and date stamp on there. Mm. Um, I will start noticing things and then I will uh, accumulate things. I like to have kind of images and I like to have a clear uh, symbol uh, through line. And then it becomes a question of okay, waiting until I can write it. I feel like I'm write it up properly because mm. I like the writing to be a certain way. Um, it's funny because I had uh, done a show on synchronicity on Project Archivist and uh, a few months, I guess it was in July, and I just wrote it up on my blog like a couple weeks ago, I think, because I kind of felt like I had to let it cool down somehow. But mm. um, <laughs> I ended up... Uh, I was thinking, okay, and it, it was, I had uh, Rojan Razorwire was a host, and then we had David Metcalf on as a guest, and I said, okay, guys, I want you to look out for synchronicities if you can, and my intention is that I want there to be synchronicities, like, around the show, uh, in the show, uh, I want people listening to get synchronicities popping up around the show, <laughs> so it should be, like, synchronicities, <laughs> and I'll usually get kind of, like, an, you have to get in this kind of weird, kind of hyped-up, weird tense kind of emotional state about it but it ended up being really good if you look on the vlog because it ended up um Rojan and I had spoken before previously he gets uh, telepathic empathy which is you um I mean telepathy is generally speaking like thoughts between people but you can have the experience of um tasting someone else's food feeling their emotions. I have uh, several friends that I grew up with who had this experience. It can be very difficult to kind of start to organize and notice and parse out. Um, you can experience physical sensations, all these type of things. And he had had this experience. It was, having, it was very challenging for him for a number of years. He ended up getting together with a group of people who've had a similar experiences and they just kind of support each other behind the scenes. They have like a even little, uh, not little, but bracelets with a saying on them, but their kind of central mascot and theme is moths, the lowly moth. Hmm. So it ended up being a situation where, um, and you're talking about noticing things later. Now the day that we recorded was in July. Um, I didn't know that the theme of moths was going to come up so strongly on that show, but I'm walking down, and part of it is just noticing unusual stuff. I'm walking down on my normal walk, and I see there, um, I go on this bike path, and the bikes uh, and walking path, and the bikes will run over like bugs or lizards and stuff. So I kind of watch out, and there's these two moths on the path, and they're copulating, so, which is unusual. So I pick them up and put them off. Uh, to the side of the, you know, in the bush, in the bush. <laughs> God. Because <laughs> I felt, you know, like how terrible they were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on Facebook, because, you know, these moths. Anyway, uh, 
it ended up okay. Then I come home, and it turns out that uh, I like that uh, very excellent podcast, Weird Studies. Oh, it turns out they were having they dropped just dropped a show on Mothman. Well, that's kind uh, of fun, yeah. Mothman. I start listening. They they actually uh, cite one of my blog posts in the show. Oh man! Like even better, right? Yeah. Um. So we kept having all this this moth stuff. There was a uh, a really fun um, one that happened uh, a few weeks afterwards. A guy, uh, Marco Acevedo, had been listening to our show, and uh, Rojan ends up talking a lot about moths. And so uh, David uh, starts talking about in Mothra how you have the the twin fairy princesses that are singing to Mothra in the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess Marco Acevedo had listened to like the, the front part of the show, the podcast, right? When it first came out. But then he, you know, he has a life, so he's doing other stuff. The night before, Mothra had been released on Netflix for the first time. So he watched that and he showed it to his kids who are twins. So then he starts listening to the podcast, and it, the first thing that comes up is David start talking about these twins singing to Mothra. Also, Marco's a Gemini. So that's a good sync. You can see the meaning. You can see the moth. Mm. But the, so that was fun to happen afterwards. But then you talk about things beforehand. Um, in the beginning of actually just about a year ago to the day, I think, um, I ended up in the emergency room because I think a couple weeks before I think I'd come down with probably influenza. I was I had like a temperature over a hundred, like up to one hundred three for almost a week. I mean I was really sick. So I ended up in the emergency room. Nothing's wrong, but they gave me a prescription for some anti vertigo medicine. And then when I looked at it when I got home, you know how they have that kind of dot matrix creepy printing, and I looked at it and I swear to God it looked like it was Doctor Mothman. <laughs> and his actually his name is Nothman. Oh wow, that's funny. I was like, what? I had to look. <laughs> but that that was like in January. We didn't have that show until July, and I didn't realize that. I mean, I kind of noticed it at the time, but I had no idea that it would be like a big, you know, premonition to, <laughs> to the moth. Wow. Yeah, so like, and it's weird because you're thinking, how do these things manifest in our world? That I mean, it seems like there's this kind of nexus around recording of the show, and that the, this big emotional charge coming from uh, the moth symbol having to do with these group of empaths. But then you have these things kind of kicking off in these weird uh, directions about okay, when did they decide they were going to do the Mothman show on weird studies? Uh, why did I get treated by a Dr. Mothman? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then another thing that happened about around that show is that. Um, I tend to, uh, actually, it's not uncommon. Um, I'm getting embarrassed. That's why I'm fudging at this point. (laughs) So there tend to be paranormal uh, occurrences and synchronicities involving underwear, right? (laughs) Uh, Because you think about the paranormal, it's like emotionally charged things, right? Uh, Things that are hidden, things that are kind of maybe... Right, so it makes sense that underwear would show up, right, in these things. So I've had uh, various paranormal uh, events and synchronicities uh, around underwear for a number of years. And also everyone in my family likes to make fun of me around my underwear. <laughs> you know, if it's ever showing, my mom will make tee-hee a comment. 
so we're getting ready. I'm getting worked up to record this show. And I'm wor- I was like panicking to Rogan and my mom. I'm like, why do I have all these horrible synchronicities? And I just don't want anything involving underwear to show up. because of all <laughs> <Yeah. my> <laughs> So a couple days before the show, my mom's like, she's reading the newspaper. She gets the newspaper every morning. I'm like, what? She's like, oh, there's a synchronicity in here. <laughs> I'm like, what is it, mom? She's like, oh, I, you have to read it. Okay, so it turns out there's these two widows in our town, and they walk along the trails, and they pick up trash. So they did a profile on them in the newspaper. So they asked them at some point in the interview, what's the weirdest thing you find when you're digging around? They say, well, we find a lot of underwear. So mom was laughing. Okay. So I start laughing when I read this, but here's the kicker. These two ladies were both uh, married. One was married to a sheriff, and the other was married to a guy who worked for Owl Rexall. So I was recording that show with Rojan and David Metcalf, and two of David Metcalf's biggest uh, research interests are this guy named Sheriff McTeer, and the Rexall drug there in Atlanta, Georgia, which has all this um, folk magic stuff. So I'm like, what are the chances? First of all, they're talking about underwear, but then it's pointing to, you know, my co-host on the show. So I was reading this. I thought that's pretty good, but there's like no fucking way I'm bringing this up on the show. <laughs> I'm like talking about underwear. But, so... Then after we recorded the show, I ended up at some point, I'm like, hey, you know this thing? I ended up bringing it up and that the, uh, one of these ladies was married to a sheriff. And, uh, and afterwards, I'm thinking, why did I do that? But if, as it, when I listened again, because I was so nervous about it, I forgot that Metcalf at some point, for some reason, I don't know why, just started going on this whole rant about this Sheriff McTeer guy. So then I was like, well, you know, then I could bring this up. But <laughs> anyway, so it was, it's like, what? I mean, that those ladies are, are married to their husbands, what, like probably 50 years ago. But then it kind of like, kind of fall, it's kind of like if you have like a, a gravitational well and it gets like certain meanings in there and things, everything that is related to that meaning, it just gets like sucked in or something. Hmm. It's like a strangest hmm. thing. Yeah. I don't, that's another reason why I like doing it is like, how, what does this say about how our world works? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say um do you have any advice for people or maybe if you could talk a little bit about how you navigate extracting meaning from synchronicities, especially something like you're talking about it's funny like with underwear, you know. I'm wondering like if if you're encountering something synchronicitous that you want to like get out of your head but then there's like this important meaning attached to something absurd like that, you know. What do, you, what do you look for? How do you navigate that? Well, actually kind of hearkening back to uh, Idocratic. My best advice for anyone trying to get out into these uh, freaky, weird, mind-bending waters is to, uh, first of all, strengthen your mundane realities. So you want to walk, you want to try and keep up with your chores, mm. uh, eat well, uh, I think a lot of people, they think, well, if you take drugs and fast and do all this stuff, it can facilitate these experiences, which it can. But um, if you want to, like you say, navigate them well and be able to maintain 
a consistent and strong relationship uh, with these strange experiences, you need to have that uh, solid physical foundation. I think this is why mm. a lot of magicians and occultists do handicrafts because it grounds you in the material. Um, you want to uh, have friends, if possible, to have good relationships with uh, the people around you. Hopefully it could be your family or your friends or your adopted families, uh, people in the community. Um, and then also you want to pay attention to your ethical, moral stance. I mean, none, none of us are perfect. But, you know, you want to do your best to uh, be coherent so you're not uh, being two-faced. Actually, that's a very profound practice in and of itself to express your um, values coherently through all aspects of your life. Um, to do that as much as you can to try and help other people uh, to, you know, be kind to animals. <laughs> yeah. To try and, and have a not even less harmful life, but to be trying to promote um, compassion and joy for other people. To, to have that type of strength, first of all, is, is very foundational. Uh, the other thing that Ida talks about a lot is clear thinking. Um, you always want to, whenever possible, uh, think clearly and, again, stay grounded in reality. That's something that um, I try and approach in terms of synchronicities. I think especially in the beginning, you want to grab it, even something that seems a little bit uh, like it, it may be so, and not get so fussy about uh, things. But... Um, for example, all those moth synchronicities, like I had, those were real uh, live moths. I have a picture of them. That was a published uh, piece in the newspaper. I took a picture. I ha had the clipping. You know, you have the link. People, a link. People can go see it. So um, people can go to the weird studies and listen to that episode where they talk about. You know, it's about Mothman, and they're they're mentioned my blog. Um, the stronger that you uh, keep your physical grounding, when you do have these uh, synchronicities and meanings come up, you can trace them um, clearly and precisely because you have had them manifest more strongly. Mm -hmm. I think you need to have the physical base. You need to have the clarity of mind to say, now there's some ones that come up that are just uh, funny or they could be an algorithm. And I would say pay attention to those too, but be able to keep it clear in your mind don't be scared to uh, look at these things critically and to, to try and confront them clearly because then you, you know, you're, you're less likely to uh, get uh, sidetracked into something completely crazy yeah. um, and be able to maintain your grounding. And paradoxically, mm. it will help strengthen your ability to manifest uh, these more confounding uh, instances. Mm. I don't know if that helps. Uh, yeah. oh, one, one other thing that I found is that um, there's different ways of looking at symbol, right? You can have like a word that's the same word. You can have a... Froze for a second. There. A lot of instances of doubles. Mm. Mm -hmm. Oh. Sorry, you're, fr you're froze for a second there. Yeah, Can I think you? it's fine now. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that answer was... Um, 
excellent though um especially because i think like so much of uh what people think about these experiences is attaining some other realm or disembodiment or like breaking away from the body, but having this connection to your everyday life and then sort of creating this tapestry and a thread. I think that's excellent advice to create a web of meaning around synchronicities, which would obviously otherwise be seen as, you know, random connections or pattern recognition or something. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that we, we're meaning creatures anyway, mm -hmm. right? We always yeah. have the realm of, of meaning. Like everything we're doing right now, it's, it could, it, you know, if we don't know, if you don't know English, right, it's a bunch of random BS. Right. Yeah. yeah everything's so, constructed on language. Yeah. And, and meaning. Yeah. Um, so this, I think it's important to, uh, I don't want to say, to think about that, that uh, we are meaning-based creatures, so we're always dealing in meaning. And there's, uh, you can look at any incident or event um, from different levels, right? There's like mm -hmm. the, uh, what do I think of? Let's say you know a young person and they've applied to a bunch of colleges, right? So you see them uh, down the street, and they are uh, at the mailbox. They take out a letter, open it up, and they start crying. Were they accepted or not? Hmm. Right? You know it's the same physical event from your vantage point, but the meaning level is, can be kind of taken out, right? Hmm. So... And this is something that it, once you start getting into occult or esoteric theory, is they, they talk a lot about different levels of reality. And you can have different things that um, are happening on different levels of reality. I mean, you could have like someone who breaks their leg, and it could end up just being one of those things, or it could end up being uh, like the culmination of some type of weird synchronistic cluster about how they're overworking, and so that's what happened. Mm. You know, I mean, right. sometimes things just happen. Sometimes they're very meaning-laden. It's, I mean, all we can do is is grapple with it and and try and remember or uh, make explicit what our kind of thought process is about why we're making a certain argument. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. Um, cool. I mean, that might be a good place to, to leave it off for now. I think that, yeah, that's a ton of <laughs> information for us tonight. Um, I love, love talking about these synchronicity uh, things, people's sort of like personal like mythologies and maps that sort of build up around these. I, I think, yeah. And the, the harder you kind of lean into it, the stranger it gets too. Um, but awesome. Yeah. So thanks again for, for coming on. Yeah. And thank you so much. Thank you. I was just uh, real excited. I'm especially excited to uh, get into Ida Craddock some because I've been very interested in her for quite a while. Um, mm -hmm. Cause I've had a lot of uh, strange, erotically tinged spiritual experiences and a lot of other people have too so that's partly where i got interested in her but she's just mm. fascinating from so many angles so thank you 
Yeah, I hope people check out her work. And um, yeah, so you said there's some books that are, you know, findable online. Yeah, we, well, I'll, I'll send you the link and then you can put it in the show. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and, yeah, and we'll talk soon. Um, where can our listeners check oh. out some of your work again yeah. as well at stephaniequick.home.blog, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, some of your visual work as well. Yeah, I have uh, a lot of the photography on there is mine, um, and a lot of writing. And if you go to the about, I have um, links to my Facebook and Twitter accounts, and then also my email if you want to send me uh, weird stories. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to, to get a weird story. Awesome. You might get them from this one. Uh, yeah, people should drop their comments too if they find any synchronicities in this. Yeah. So great to hear. Awesome. All right. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thanks. Bye. Cool. All right. I'll talk to you soon.